Thanks for taking the time to listen to these recordings of our Sunday morning sermons. The Door Church is one church in two locations on mission to see lives restored with the gospel for God's glory, and we'd love to have you join us. To learn more about our gatherings in Louisville and Argyle, Texas, visit our website at thedoorchurch.net. Now, let's worship God by opening His Word. So also exciting, uh, this morning we're starting a, a new sermon series for the next couple months, an overview of Ecclesiastes. So if you've got your Bible, I'd love for you to grab it. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. That's in the Old Testament, right after Proverbs, as you can see up here on the slide. Uh, the title for this whole series is From Vanity to Purpose, so this idea of from death to life. Today we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and the title for today's particular sermon is A New Meaning for Life. So I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, 1 through 11, and we'll just continue to dig in. This beginning section is titled, All is Vanity. God's word says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil that which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of God. And all God's people said, amen. amen. I mean, listen, let's be honest. This isn't like a super KLTY feeling here in verses 1 through 11. This is not uh, your Christian radio commercial break words of encouragement as you're driving in the car and someone's like, God's word says in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, all is vanity, 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 vanity. That's not what people typically go to for encouragement, um, but God's word, good news, it's all good, it's all true, and we need it. It's for us, it's not about us, but it leads us to the one that's all about in Jesus Christ. So Ecclesiastes tells us transparently that life in a fallen world full of sin leaves us absolutely frustrated, disappointed, and unsatisfied. The preacher, referring to the author of this, is man, there's general agreement that, that it is Solomon, King Solomon. And for anyone who doesn't know who King Solomon is, the thing that you need to know probably more than anything right now as we read this book is that he is regarded as the richest and wisest man to ever walk on this planet. So the richest and wisest man, King Solomon, to ever walk on this planet, he's continually touching on death and the reality surrounding death so that we don't ignore it, that we can't ignore it. And all of this, by God's grace, will hopefully point us to the gospel of Jesus, the only thing in person that truly, really matters. Because I know that there are some here this morning in this room right now where your hope is not in Christ. Your hope is in you. Your hope is in this world. And that's the way we're all born. But if that is you, that is a hopeless and miserable existence, and I pray that God reveals that to all of us today through his word. Ecclesiastes drives us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, longing for Jesus to make all things new. The book centers on what truly matters and to not take anything, even the small things for granted, but receive them as gifts from the hand of God, a good heavenly father. 
Now, before we literally go verse by verse in this, I want to ask just a couple questions, pose a couple questions before we get going. One, why study Ecclesiastes? And two, how can we study Ecclesiastes? So why, why study Ecclesiastes? Well, one, it helps us to be honest about the troubles of life. I don't know if, if you think church is a place where you can be honest about the troubles of life, but it is. I hope that it is for you. I pray that the Door Church is that place for all of us to be transparent, to be real, that, that this life is hard, that it is brutal, that it is broken. That's what the preacher's inviting us into. Solomon's keeping it real, and I hope, I hope that we can as well. Two, it helps us ask the biggest questions that people have and apply the gospel to them by God's grace. I mean, people all the time want to know, what's the secret to life? What's the meaning to life? How can I find true joy? How do I find actual happiness? Three, it helps us live for God's glory and not ourselves. See, all of us love us. We are self-centered by nature. That's what makes us sinners. But self-centeredness leaves us unsatisfied because we weren't created to live for ourselves but for God's glory. The secret of life isn't having everything. If anyone did have everything, you would be King Solomon, the richest and wisest man to ever walk on this earth. He had no fantasy that he could not make come true. His resources were limitless, and he's saying that it's all vanity. Therefore, the secret in life must be found somewhere in someone else. Spoiler alert, Jesus. If you've come here at all, that's where we're just going to point to Jesus. He's the answer. He's the solution. So what are some ways we can study Ecclesiastes? Well, one, it's a unified message. Essentially, throughout Ecclesiastes, the message is fear God in everything and enjoy God in everything, even the little things. Fearing God is actually how the book ends. Again, we'll just skip ahead. We'll get there in a few weeks. But chapter 12, verse 13 in Ecclesiastes says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The whole purpose of man, human, mankind, fear God and keep his commandments. So how do we live our best life? Fearing God, submitting to God, revere for God, worship of God. See, I know I've said this before, so maybe you've heard it, but I grew up in church and this idea of fearing God didn't make sense in, in my brain because I was like, man, if God's this amazing God, why should I be afraid of him? I don't, I, I, this, this, this doesn't make sense to me, it doesn't add up. But by God's grace, opening my eyes and ears and heart to believe later in life, and realizing this idea of fear is this all. There's a difference of being afraid and, 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 and this healthy fear. See, one of my greatest sin struggles is I have fear of man. Man, I, I love people. I want people to be happy. I want people to like me. I want, to, I want people to get what they want. I want them to be enjoying things. I want uh, people to, to not be sad. And so I have this fear of man. And so really when someone helped me realize a long time ago that that's what fear of God is. It's this such a great love for God that you want to do anything to serve him. Whatever makes him happy and glorified and honors him and to worship him and not worship people. See, when I worship people, I'm, I'm, man, I'm giving way to sin. When I worship God, that's exactly what I was meant to do. The same is true for, for you as well. So when we fear God, it's this awe of God, this submitting to him, this revere for him, this worship of him. And how do we do that? By keeping his commandments. See, God's commandments aren't these oppressive rules to try and make life not fun. His commandments are in place because he cares about you and loves you. And actually, by following his commandments, it's what brings us joy. It's actually what brings thriving in our life. We're just foolish and we don't believe it. We think we know better and we don't. But fearing him and keeping his commandments are both important because in the fear of God, we acknowledge God's holiness. And enjoying God's guidance through his commandments, we acknowledge God's grace. He is holy and he is good. 
Another way we study God's word in Ecclesiastes is in the light of the risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes isn't the last book in the Bible. Revelations is. Praise God for that. We should read this text in light of the entire Bible where Jesus is the victorious hero. And in the end, for any of us who find our lives in Christ, it ends in the most magnificent way that none of us could actually really truly imagine even on our best day because heaven is, is beyond what we imagine perfect to be. And that's what awaits for anyone who finds their life in Christ, which is incredible. So as we ask what is, it looks like to fear God and keep his commandments, we look to Jesus. Jesus conquered and crushed Solomon's greatest fear, which was death, through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. Jesus is the one who will be returning, making all things new, bringing new heavens and new earth. So how do we live in a broken world under the sun? By living in the one true son, Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we use this language and you're like, wow, dude, how do you live in someone? Like that? Okay, so the way, the way to find purpose living under the vanity of the physical son is to find life in the actual son of God. How do you find, how do you find your life in someone? And the only way that happens is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God allows you to recognize that you are a sinner, that you are broken, far more wicked than, than you realize. I'm far more wicked than I realize or can really admit. And to see that reality, and not only see that, but to realize I can't clean myself up, I don't like the ability, I can't be better, no one can clean me up, no one can make me be better, no one can do this for me, so I'm spiritually bankrupt, I'm hopeless, and then in that light, which is not, hear me, I know it's not a fun light that God would reveal to us, but it's beautiful because then if God allows us to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, to see that God is a good heavenly father through the lenses of the cross of Jesus Christ, and then gives us the ability to turn from sin to Jesus, that's repentance. Repentance is turning from sin to Christ, confessing I am broken, I'm a sinner, and Jesus, you're my only hope. You're the only hope I have and we repent of our sin and self-righteousness, and we believe that Jesus, you are Lord and Savior. You lived for me. You died for me. You rose so that I may find life in God through you by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's when we live in Christ. Surrendering our lives to the foot of the cross, no longer I that live, but Christ that lives within me. Removing a heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh that lives for God. Not instantly perfect, but as long as we're here on this earth, God's sanctifying the sin out of us, making us more like Jesus every single day. That's what it is to live in Jesus Christ and to see that, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He rules over the physical son. He's the creator of the son and the universe. So remember, as we read Ecclesiastes, recognize the author's mostly pessimistic attitude comes because he's contemplating life devoid of God. He's contemplating life devoid of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because today we're looking at what life looks like under the sun without God in the picture. So we need all of God's word to help us interpret Ecclesiastes. Today, one bit of scripture I think we should look at in light of reading verses 1 through 11, we should look at Romans 8, 18 through 21. It'll be up on the screen. God's word says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, basically, sin ushers in pain, frustration, death, meaninglessness. 
It's the curse, our sin, because of our rebellion against God. Ecclesiastes blesses us by showing us the world will not satisfy us without God. This liberation from our insanity of trying to find contentment in getting things. That's what we're all about. We're all about getting things. We all want different things, but all of us want the same things. We want to get rich. We want to get pleasure. We want to get attention. We want to get sleep. We want to get popular. We want to get, we want to get, we want to get. And that's sin, and it's wicked, and it will not bring us true satisfaction. True joy to life is living for another and giving all as we've received all. Sin is why everything's broken. Adam's sin, Eve's sin, your sin, my sin. But as Romans says, the amazing truth is that because of Jesus, the groaning will give way to glory. Now that's some reasons why to study Ecclesiastes, some, some, maybe some ways how to study Ecclesiastes. So now let's go verses 1 through 11 and by God's grace apply gospel hope here at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. So verse 1, the words of a preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Solomon is like a preacher, gathering people together for instruction, gathering for an assembly. Verse 2, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Solomon is not stuttering. He is trying to emphasize vanity of vanities. It is a shocking statement, and the word vanity is used throughout Ecclesiastes. It can be translated to meaningless but it's also a good way to think of it as vapor or breath. And it's not even just vapor. It's like your coffee cup, there's the vapor coming off. It's the vapor above the, va- the, vapor, above the vapor. It's, it's when you blow bubbles and you have big bubbles, but then there's the little bubbles above it that, that they almost disappear before you can see it. More than fleeting nature of life, it's the elusive nature of life. And he's saying it's all vanity. And it leaves us asking, Really? Is it really all vanity? Solomon's glad you asked, because he's going to try and drive home this point. And so the first point he argues yes to is with toil. If you look up definition of toil, that's working extremely hard. It's exhausting labor. So in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He asks, what does man gain from his work? Nothing. Work devoid of God. All your work, no matter how hard you work. You know what it means without God? Absolutely nothing. Verses 4 through 11 now begin to paint a stark picture to support what life, your work, your toil can feel like devoid of God. And he basically says three things regarding your work, my work, our life, our toil without God. He basically says nothing really changes, nothing is really new, and nothing really is ever remembered. Super uplifting. Nothing really changes, nothing's really new, and nothing's really remembered. And we see this. This is what life looks like under the sun without God. Nothing really changes. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. See, we see a lot of action movement in his painting of vanity, but also a lot of monotony. Notice if it was comes and goes, that would be progress, but it says goes and comes. It's just simply being replaced, not, not true gain or forward progress. And Solomon says, what remains is the earth. It was spinning before I got here, and it was spinning after I returned to dust. And the same is true of you and me. Earth was spinning before we got here, and if Christ doesn't return before we return to dust, it's going to keep spinning after you and I are long gone. See, generally, there's about six generations alive at one time, give or take. So I had to look these up, okay? So right now, we have the alpha generation. Didn't even know that existed. But that's if you are born in 2013, through, through now, right? So a lot of those people right now, they're chilling in TDC Kids, right? That's the alpha generation. That's a pretty bold claim to, like alpha? 
Like, this is ridiculous. Alpha generation. Generation Z, 1995 to 2012. Millennials, 1980 to 1994. Generation X, 1965 to 1979. Baby boomers, 1940. Someone say something? Listen, this is interesting because you know what? Literally, all three gatherings, baby boomer, someone says amen or yep, whoop, like some. You baby boomers are proud. I mean, kind of, you know, more power to you. It's pretty impressive. Baby boomers, 1946, 1964. That's consistency, man. All three gatherings. That's impre- and no one else says anything about their generation. <laughs> Silent generation, 1928 to 1945. And then the greatest generation, 1901 to 1927. Now, as life would have it, almost all the greatest generation has passed at this point. And the silent generation, many have passed or are passing soon. The baby boomers are starting to pass. Greater numbers in in X, you're next. And millennials will be after that and so on and so forth. And as an older millennial, now that's honestly, I didn't even know I was considered a millennial. I'm on the older side of millennial and I I guess I have to embrace I'm a millennial. I wouldn't have thought that. But I guess we are who we are. I'm a millennial. I'm an older millennial. And so I can feel myself studying for this Ecclesiastes sermon series, and it hits me different than it would have 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Because as I, as I really start pondering life, I mean, if I take the average age of an adult male when they pass away, it's, I'm, I'm like halfway down the conveyor belt. It's kind of a weird, a weird feeling. And so I, I, I read Ecclesiastes differently now. My Bubba, my grandpa who passed away a couple years ago, he was in the silent generation by God's grace, a Christian, and he's with God right now, and I praise God for that, and I can't wait to see my Bubba again. But this hits him differently when it was coming to the close of his life, because he was in and out of doctor offices for different reasons, the hospital for different reasons, and, and at the end of his life, it didn't matter if you were a nurse, a doctor, a technician, a custodian, literally the first thing you would ask anyone was, hey, do you know Jesus? Hey, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Hey, what's the name of Jesus Christ mean to you? And it would rub some people the wrong way. Some people would ignore him. Some people would stop and talk to him. But my Bubba knew, this is all vanity. It's all going away. It's returned to dust. And the only thing that matters is Christ. So we better talk about it because it's coming to an end. So depending on where you are in life, this text is going to register differently in your heart. It just will. So now for Solomon to prove the point to you that your work in life is not really changing, nothing changes, He goes to creation to give us some examples. So let's look at that. That's verses five through seven. Verse five, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The the sun does the same thing over and over again. And it's the same sun that always has been. The same sun that God created and spoke into existence. The same sun that Abraham saw is the same sun that you and I see today. He says, we're like the sun doing the same things over and over again. There's a lot of monotony to it. It's like running on a treadmill. And what's, what's amazing is when you compare this language with the language in the Psalms. Psalms is wisdom literature. This is Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. But let's look at what it says in Psalms 19. One will be up on the screen. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now that's happy, beautiful, worshipful language of how creation points to God. That's with God in mind. But looking at creation devoid of God, it's very Eeyore. Nah. Same son doing the same thing over and over, just like you. When you take God out of the picture, you literally view everything differently. 
the same way that when God is in your life, it quite literally changes everything about you and the way you see everything from now and for all eternity. Now the preacher is going to inject God into this text, but these first 11 verses, it's just devoid of God. Verse six, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits, the wind returns. The wind goes around and around. Some days it blows this way, some days it blows that way. It's a, it's a whole lot of commotion and, and not a lot of change. It's just like us. We can be very busy moving around in a lot of different directions, making a fuss about anything and everything. Amen, good Lord, we like to make a fuss about anything or everything, me included. But nothing, nothing really ever legitimately changes. There's no significant change. Verse seven, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. The streams and the rivers, they run into the sea, but the sea is not full. They're never really fully satisfied. The Mississippi River, it flows into the Gulf of Mexico. The Gulf of Mexico flows into the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic Ocean never like overflows somewhere. It never, it's never overflowing. What Water continues to evaporate. Rain continues to come, and the same thing happens over and over again without any real big change. In our everyday lives, maybe it looks like, who, who here knows that you have laundry and dishes waiting for you at home? Y'all, some people in here are honest. Some people, the awkward thing is, is when there's two people living in the same house and neither one's raising their hand, the other one's looking like, oh, you definitely got laundries and dishes waiting for you later when we get home. Say you do those laundry and dishes today. What's more than likely waiting for you tomorrow night? laundry and dishes. And usually if it's to less than 24 hours, it's because maybe there's, there's young people living in your house. Say there are young people living in your house. 5 p.m. today, what's going to be scattered all over your house? All the toys. All the stuff. So much stuff. Stuff you didn't even know you had. Stuff that's now broken. And so you pick up after those beautiful little angels and somehow even the broken stuff you just put away. I don't know why we do that. Why don't we just throw the broken stuff away, but we just pick, pick it back up. You know what stuff's going to be all over your house tomorrow at 5 o'clock? All the stuff. All the toys. It's Ecclesiastes. If you're a parent, your voice should be tired from all the amens you give to God while reading through Ecclesiastes. Solomon's keeping it real, and this is life. Verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. There's a weary monotony to all things, and the example is like our eyes and ears. Our eyes are never fully satisfied with what they see. Our ears never satisfied with what they hear. And we are a people that see things all the time. It is not crazy, I'm sure, to anyone in this room that never before has the average number of televisions been so high in the average household. We're constantly watching TV. And if there actually happens to be a commercial now that you're watching or it's just a part of your program that you don't find particularly interesting, what do you do? Reach for your phone. So your eyes are watching, you're listening, you're like, oh, I'm not fully satisfied. You look at your phone, and so you're kind of watching and listening to two things at the same time. Someone in your house is talking to you, and you're kind of not totally satisfied with them either, so you're kind of listening to them, kind of not. You're kind of looking at them, looking at your phone, looking at the TV, and it's because you can't find satisfaction in anything. And so you're looking for it everywhere. So to summarize so far what the preacher Solomon is telling us, our toils are insignificant and our lives are dissatisfied. And maybe you're starting to resonate with what Solomon's saying. But let's keep going. So, so tomorrow's Monday morning. Some 
Theologians, tongue-in-cheek, they say that Ecclesiastes must have been written on a Monday morning. But tomorrow's Monday morning. So for many of you, it's the beginning of a work week. So what are you going to do? You're going to wake up. By God's grace, you got breath in your lungs. You wake up. Maybe you brush your teeth. Hypothetical maybe, y'all. you got to brush your teeth. Big deal. Brush your teeth. And pro tip, brush your tongue. Brush your tongue. Trust me, okay? Some of y'all out there, maybe you brush your teeth in the morning, afternoon, but you're putting people on blast with your dragon breath because you don't brush your tongue. Think about it. Think about all the stuff that ends up on your tongue. Just brush your tongue. The first gathering, someone said amen really loud. That person is getting totally blown up by someone who doesn't brush their tongue in the mornings, okay? Brush your teeth, brush your tongue. Then what? You get dressed. Very important. Get dressed. Then what? Eat breakfast. Or if you're like me, you dream of breakfast because I'm, I'm doing that intermittent fasting thing with my wife, Lauren. It's awesome. So, so you dream of breakfast or you eat breakfast. Then you head to, you head to work. Or you, maybe you work from home or maybe your work is the home and you don't ever leave. But you clock in, you start work. You work, you work, you work, and then you eat lunch. And then you work and you work and you work, you work some more, and then you clock out. Maybe you hit the gym on your way home. Maybe you're streaming workouts at home online. Prepare dinner, eat dinner, spend time with your kids if you have kids. Catch up with your spouse if you're married. Talk to your friends to catch up on fellowship. You get ready for bed. Maybe you read something. Maybe you watch something and you fall asleep. What do you do on Tuesday? Same thing. What do you do on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday? Same thing. The weekend, sure, maybe it looks a little different, but it's not really significantly different. We all just do various stuff in between the sleeps. And Solomon says, yep, just like the sun, nothing really changes. Secondly, he says, nothing is really new. Look at verses 9 and 10. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. Solomon's talking about the fundamental aspects of life not changing. We see this in so many obvious ways. One of those is fashion. There's not like anything new in fashion, like vintage, whatever. Like, so when I was growing up, shorts, whether it was athletic, cargo shorts, whatever, the appropriate thing for shorts was like they hung out above your knee, right, or over your knee, which I very much appreciated, okay? My dad, I see pictures of him when he was young, really high shorts, okay? Like uncomfortably high shorts. You want to know what young people today are doing? Some of y'all are in here. You know it too. Like you may even have them on right now. Shorts like this. It's not new, but dude, it's wrong, Okay? <laughs> Because look, you call them shorts, I call them boxer briefs. And you need to get some longer shorts, okay? Mom jeans. When I was a kid, moms wore mom jeans because they were like, that's what I got to wear. Today, young ladies are like, I want to wear mom jeans, okay? Whatever. I'm not hating on it. I'm just saying it's nothing new, right? I still have my hammer pants in the closet, and I'm waiting for those things to come back in style because I'm ready to rock them. They're comfortable. I love them, and they're legit, okay? Too legit to quit. That's right. Listen. <laughs> I'm not that different in size right now than I was in sixth grade, so they still fit me, all right? So I'm ready for the hammer pants. <laughs> Nothing's new. Landing on the moon, all this talk about Mars, it's just another form of exploration. People have been exploring things from the beginning of time. When viewed against the backdrop of history, newness fades away very quickly. And finally, the preacher says to close out this very positive and uplifting beginning to Ecclesiastes, nothing is really remembered. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. 
So I don't know, some of y'all in here, y'all know Maggie Fink. She's our, our deacon of, of worship ministry. She's been at the church for a long time, and God's just given her such a, a beautiful heart for Jesus and other people and a beautiful voice. And um, we're, we have like worship practice years ago at Sesarm, and you know, you're just kind of talking when things are getting going. I'm like, Maggie, you know, how's your weekend? What's good? How are your folks, Bailey and Maria? Well, they're good. They actually went on a, a date last night to a concert. I was like, oh, that's cool. What concert did they go to? She's like, it was a country concert. I was like, oh, cool. I love country music. Who'd they, who'd they go see? She was like, oh, man. She was like, uh, it's like Darth Brooks. And I was like, Garth Brooks? And she was like, you've heard of him. And I was like, and you're for real right now. So you got a, a young lady in her young 20s, Generation Z, Lord help y'all, she has no idea Darth Brooks. Like y'all, Garth Brooks, you wanna know who has sold more album units than Garth Brooks? The Beatles, that's it, that's the list. You wanna know who sold more album units in the United States? Nobody, he's at the top, second is Elvis. Maggie doesn't know who Garth Brooks is. Darth Brooks. And so that's a super sober moment. You're like, dude, no one actually remembers anything. Like this, we're all just fading away. And so actually, maybe some of y'all, literally, some of y'all are sitting there like, I don't know what's funny. I don't know who this Garth Brooks fella is. I resonate with Maggie. I don't know what's going on. But maybe this resonates with everyone in here because there's a decent chance everyone in here could name the birth names of your grandparents. There's a pretty good shot you could say the birth names of your great-grandparents. But I'd be willing to bet there's maybe not anyone in here this morning that can give the birth names of their great-great-grandparents. I'm not talking about like Mima and Papa. I'm talking about birth names. What were their names? Let alone like who were they? What'd they do? And so if that doesn't hammer it home for, for a majority of us in here that like, we don't even know the names of our family members four generations removed. That's how quickly people are forgotten, that nothing really lasts, nothing is really remembered. Doesn't Ecclesiastes stir something inside of you regarding just the vapor, the mist of life? So then it's like, what's the solution? If God's allowing you to see that there's, a, there's an issue in this broken world, how do we solve it? I can tell you the answer isn't escapism. And what I mean by that is a lot of people, they, they try their hardest not to think about the realities of life. And so some do it through substance abuse of drugs. Some do it through substance abuse of alcohol. Some do it through substance abuse of Netflix. Some do it through the substance abuse of social media, youth sports, professional sports, adult rec leagues, adult programming, video games, all in an attempt to try and not think about and avoid life itself, to not think about and avoid death. Some people's reaction is hedonism, which just means like, hey, eat, drink, be merry. Row goes on forever and the party never ends until it does. Let's live it up, let's do us, and just, man, let's us party. And neither one of those answers is, is, the, is, is the right solution. There's one solution, and it's to take our toil in Christ. See, the way we deal with these frustrations, these thorns, these thistles, is by setting our hope on and in the gospel of Jesus. Our work is toil, 
But the work of Jesus Christ on the cross changed and continues to change everything. Instead of seeing it as nothing ever changes, I pray that all of us today see and trust and believe that Jesus changes everything. In Christ, there's a newness in the monotony. There's a newness in doing laundry. There's a newness in cleaning up for your children. There's a newness in your marriage. There's a newness in your rest. There's a newness in your joy. There's a newness to your work. There's a newness to the breath that you're breathing. There's literally a newness to everything in Christ. In Christ, we know our work is not in vain. So we're going to read several scriptures kind of back to back and and just showing like what God says about Christ. Because we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it'll be up on the screen. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We're told that our work can and should be joyous. So that when we read all this sad reality, this truth about this world devoid of God, that the amazing grace truth is that Jesus Christ's work on the cross changed everything for anyone who finds their life in him. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, it'll be up on the screen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We talked about that, being in Christ. You are no longer a child of wrath, but a child of God. No longer a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh that beats for Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit. When God looks down upon you, he doesn't see your broken life. He sees the perfect life of his son. And he's proud of you and he adores you. The feeling of frustration, monotony, sorrow, grieving, futility, vanity, and pain of death will not last for those in Christ. So don't toil without Christ, but be wise and know Jesus and that his work is remembered, always will be remembered, and their labor is not in vain. Colossians 2, 2 through 3 will be up on the screen. It says this, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge is a person. It's Jesus Christ. Life does have meaning, but not apart from Christ. Ecclesiastes verses 1 through 11 in chapter 1 tell of toil and frustration in a fallen world, but the gospel tells of how Jesus will redeem it all. So don't go the path of escapism. Don't go the path of hedonism. By God's grace, choose the narrow path of Jesus Christ. Jesus stood under the sun for you and for me so that we could find our life in him, the Son of God. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose so that in him, you could have everything that you've ever dreamed of and you could ever need and the solution to every problem that ever exists. He defeated death through his death and resurrection. And he will return. And he will bring new heavens and new earth. And he will restore paradise for all those that are found in him. And through him and him alone, we were able to fear God and keep his commandments. John 16, will be up on the screen and we'll close. God's word says this. This is Jesus talking. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. A meaningful life, church, is one living in the light of God's word, transformed by the love of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are an incredibly loving Father. A loving Father that loves us enough to put before us your word, 
let us, by your grace, be real about this world, the vanity of life. We all in here are prone to wander, and we believe that this life will satisfy us in ways that it never will, that only you can. May you expose those things to us this morning. May you take away those desires. May our sin become bitter and the sweetness of Christ grow sweet in our hearts evermore today. God, may the vanity of this world not crush us, but just reveal to us our desperate need of Jesus. And may you, by your grace and mercy, stir the love of Jesus in our hearts. May we fear you in the most beautiful way to revere you, to worship you, to surrender to you, to stand in awe of you, a good, loving Father. To praise you for the gift of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. To by your power and strength keep your commandments that give us life, that bring us joy, that bring us flourishing, that honor and glorify you and make much of Jesus Christ. We can't do that on our own. It only comes from you. So God, we're asking this morning that you would allow us to come to a place of surrender at the foot of the cross, that you would fill us with your love and strength and wisdom, and that we would worship you and be known by the love of Jesus. And it's in his precious name we pray, amen.